Hello everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night, a Game of Thrones show in conjunction with our friends at the Narth subreddit. My name is Rob and I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching every single episode of Game of Thrones for the very first time. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Longest Night GOT. That is at Longest Night GOT. If you'd like to chat with us away from our episodes or drop us a line, our brand new theme tune that you've heard uh, at the start of the episode and are hearing underneath our voices right now is provided by my really good friend uh, Ed Thomas. I will leave a link to his music in the show notes. You can go and find all of the stuff that he's ever done for himself while you're listening to all the stuff that he's ever done for us, which is just this nice little theme tune that he's made for us that I asked him to do. And he's done a very good job with it. Uh, you will have heard it at the start of our interviews with uh, Miltos Yerolemu that you can find further back in our feed. And now it's going to be our proper theme tune. It's kind of like at the start of Peep Show where they have the original theme tune and then you hear the Harvey Danger song in the background of a scene where they're, where they're bowling. And then from season two onwards, that song that you hear in the back of that bowling scene is the theme tune. And I've done a similar thing yeah. with it there. <laughs> um, all right then, um, we are right at the start of season four, so let's get in. This week we are going to be discussing season four, episode one, entitled Two Swords. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss, and it was also directed by Dan Weiss. It was first broadcast on the 6th of April 2014 to an audience of 6.64 million people, which broke the series record up to this point. Uh, Lizzie, we've been chatting a little bit about this episode during the week, but why don't you tell everyone else how you feel about this? Yeah, it's a really good episode, this. I'd say probably the strongest of all the season premieres so far. Uh, Yeah, I would agree. Um, It's my favourite season premiere of the whole show. Uh, I love it. Oh, awesome. I I think it's fantastic. Uh, I just think that it introduces this wonderful new character in Oberyn who, like, breezes into the show and dominates every scene that he's in, nudges other storylines along really nicely, uh, sets up some intriguing plot threads for the season ahead, and we also get Mm -hmm. that great, as you described it, uh, kiss-ass and chew bubblegum ending with Arya and the Hound. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah, no, it's a really, really cool season premiere, but tell me your thoughts on Oberyn. Brand new face, what do you make of him? Well, before we get on Oberyn, um, we have a lot of talk on the podcast about the death of hope towards the end of season three. Yeah. They kind of raised some questions about, you know, where the show's protagonists can, can really go from here, but what this episode brought to mind more than anything, you know, a number of times was a quote by John Milton, which is... Where no hope is left, is left no fear. Mm-hmm. Okay. That feels like it feels like the arc for quite a few characters in this episode, and yeah. Um, also, well, yeah, the introduction of Oberyn, like, good God, I'm gonna paraphrase um, the late writer Sarah Hughes here and say, within minutes of arriving in King's Landing, Oberyn had stripped two sex workers procured a procurer and severed the veins in a Lannister soldier's wrist. Yeah. Like, what an entrance. It, the, my favourite moment for me, for him specifically, is when he just glides his hand over that candle. Yeah. It, yeah. It's such a great little touch about his character and his nature and the fact that he stares danger in the face and just says, fuck it. Like, I just, yeah, no, it's an amazing introduction, steals every scene that he's in. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's and and then the episode has that amazing ending with all the stuff um, at the at the end that we'll get to. Wait for Manza's orders. You sent a man over the wall at the full moon. If he's not back yet, he's not coming back. And what is it you want? March from Castle Black with just this lot. Your pretty crows had a thousand men on this thing there. Yeah, well, he's a liar. He is. Shouldn't it be he was? You said you put three arrows in him. Yeah, I did. I've seen you slip a shaft through a rabbit's eye at 200 yards. If that boy's still walking, it's because you let him go. Tormund and Egret are in the middle of a disagreement over when to attack Castle Black and whether Egret did actually intend to kill Jon with those arrows. Uh, when they receive a warning from a nearby scout that they have company, that company turns out to be a tribe of Fen. Uh, they're a group of wildlings from even further beyond the wall who have made it south as well and they're waiting for orders to attack the Night's Watch too. Uh, the Fen are then revealed to be cannibals who promise to let Tormund try crow when they reach Castle Black. So it's only a short scene, um, but I think there's quite a bit to take out of it for you personally. Um, my notes are basically, uh, Egret's still around and we have some Fen, new faces, and they're cannibals. Hooray! So, um, we'll talk about uh, Egret first so you were surprised to see her in the trailer but now that you've seen her in an actual scene i guess you know d does it make more sense to you that she's still around um yeah it does i've i've put there's not i didn't really have much to say about this scene and i've also put i feel a bit sorry for the fence their entrance having been entirely overshadowed by the first appearance of oberin <laughs> yeah yeah, it's it's nice to see Tormund and Igret again. I did like both of those characters in the last season. And it didn't seem like a guarantee that we'd get another appearance from the two of them. You know, given that um, there was twice when it feels like they could have wrapped up the Egret the storyline, but they've, you know, they've chosen not to. And they have a new angle now that John's out of their story arc. They have this rival faction of wildlings and... Yeah, um, it's a little bit different. I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes. Yeah, I think as well, the thing with um, Egret as well is that the new angle added to her story now is that John has essentially betrayed her. And yeah. so it's about how she feels in the aftermath of John basically walking back on the vow that he swore to her and going back to the Night's Watch. And yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just nice that the show has given... Because obviously Egret is not a point-of-view character in the books. Like, all this this whole scene is, like... Uh, I think it's pretty much all show-invented. Um, like, the, the at least the dialogue, anyway. Um, where Tormund and Egret are arguing and basically confirming that Egret didn't really intend to kill John in the season yeah, finale. She yeah. was just trying to wound him and send him a message without killing him. But all of this is... Um, the show starting i think now to really use the source material as a guide rather than as a bible if you know what i yeah. mean and yeah. i think that um no it, it, it's a really good scene and it means that we get um it, we get more of a like I say more time with egret a better perspective from egret and yeah short scene but it has quite a funny ending with the promise that cannibals are attempting to attack the night's watch <laughs> And a part of the army. There are much bigger force. You know, Tormund and Igret at this point are a sort of band of outsiders. There's only, you know, just the two of them trudging through the north. But here you have this huge, like, gang of cannibals. And 
yeah, that's a much more intimidating force than just Tormund and Ygritte. Absolutely, and I am just underneath right now because I'm recording in my bedroom again because of the temperatures in the UK at the moment. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sat underneath my drawn map from the uh, Worlds of Ice and Fire illustration book, and you can take them out as posters, and I put a poster on my wall, and the forest of Then... Um, they're up above the Frost Fangs, which are the mountains that run up the left-hand side of the map. Beyond Great the wall. name, by the way. The Frost Great Fangs, name. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're, they're right at the top. You got, I think it's the Forest of Then, or just like the area of Then, but it's like all the way up beyond the wall, almost the, the land of always winter, um, hmm. which is like a, a place that matters more in the book than it does in the show. Um, so, yeah, no, they've come a hell of a long way. They've eaten some people. While crossing the wall, <laughs> now, yeah, that's it. They've come to kick ass and eat people, and they're all out of people. So, uh... <laughs> he even talks like a wildling now. Nah, I talk like a wildling. I ate with the wildlings. I climbed the wall with the wildlings. I, I lay with a wildling girl. You admit to breaking your vows, then? I do. The law is the law. The boy must die. Did every ranger who lay with a girl, the wall would be manned by headless men. So at Castle Black, John is still recovering from his wounds when a meeting is called to determine the nature of his time that he spent with the wildlings. And under pressure, John admits to killing Corin Harfand but defends himself when he's accused of actually murdering him. But he does admit to breaking his vow not to lay with uh, women. And Janos Slint who you remember, uh, is a new arrival at Castle Black after being sent away Mm -hmm. by Tyrion at the start of Season 2, tries to sentence Jon to death, but Maester Aemon steps in and defends Jon and ensures that no punishment will be handed down to him today. So, another sort of short little scene at Castle Black. Um, What do you make of, initially, I don't know if you took any notes about Sam's scene with Jon, where Jon's kind of getting dressed and getting ready. Yeah, it's actually um, kind of a really sweet scene that where John's basically recalling that Rob was always the the more impressive one of the two, and John was always kind of looking up to him in a sense, even if they're not not full blood brothers. That there is that you know that brotherly bond there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they only ever had one scene together, and it's the scene that is referenced um, in yeah, this yeah. episode, yeah. and you could tell that. With the family, the rest of the family, that they were all kind of, you know, they saw John as the bastard that he was and they weren't mm-hmm. happy with him. But Rob actually, in the first episode, embraces him and promises yeah, to go and true. see him at the wall. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, def- Rob and Theon and John were all kind of more bonded than maybe the rest of the family uh, were with John. And yeah, so you're totally right to pick up on that. And I also think it's kind of funny that Sam's rebuttal is. Um, I think fair enough because Jesus, I mean, look at John and like his ability and the fact that he is quite, uh, well, is now definitely more successful with girls than Sam ever was and that he's brilliant yeah, with a sword yeah. and he's better at riding and hunting and fighting and stuff like that. And then Sam's like, a bit rich coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those, um, he's not the most self-aware person is John, but no, um, well, Egret had him. I think she saw straight through him with the uh, you know nothing stuff. 
I think that for sure. was uh... for sure. <laughs> what do you make of his trial scene? I I think it's quite funny here to see here it, John's sort of inner Ned Stark coming out here. This is our th- th- this show just has this brilliant way of making ghosts hang around. Where like you can feel Ned Stark in John's the way that John deals with that trial. Where like he doesn't even try really to not tell the truth. He just he just tells the truth straight away, even though it could have cost him his life. And he's like he's just silly to a fault. Really, in the same way that Ned was, he's so honest to the point mm. where it's like, you're probably a little bit too honest and you're doing yourself a bit of a disservice here. But um, what did you make of the trial scene? Yeah, but we're at the point where John's back at Castle Black. Um, he's got nothing left to lose and therefore nothing left to fear. Going back to that John Milton quote. Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't have to fear them anymore because his their threats of execution are just shrugged off by him. Perhaps his confidence comes from... The knowledge that he's more useful to the Night's Watch alive than dead. His experiences in the Wildling camp with Mance Raider grant him far more knowledge and experience of what's beyond the wall than, I don't know, Janos Slint will ever have. And I think even Alistair Thorne, who we know doesn't like him one bit, he might even realise that it's important to you know keep one's friends close and one's enemies closer. Yeah, um, there's one thing you could say for Sir Alistair, I think, is that he's not an idiot, and he doesn't... Um, no, no. You know, no. He's another one of these characters in the show where there's basically no flies on him, and you can't really get anything past him. Um, what did you make of his reintroduction to the show? Because this is the first time we have seen Alistair Thorne since the end of season one, when he was sent basically on a nothing mission to King's Landing, um, just to keep him away from John. Um, so what did you make of his reintroduction? I'm happy to see him again. Um, I think it's, um, we said in the, was it the last episode? We said, you know, Castle Black in the first season was this miserable place that you never wanted to return to until you see, you know, Harrenhal and all these other miserable hellholes. And it's like, oh, Castle Black, we're home. And yeah, there's Sir Alistair. Uh, yeah. Maester Raymond there. Yeah. yeah and and you've got Maester Raymond there as well. Yeah. Yeah. But so yeah, I, I was I was happy to see him again, and he's a perfect foil for John because, like you say, nothing gets past him. It's not like mm-hmm. John's a bullshitter or anything. But yeah, I like that tension the two of them had in season one, and looking forward to more of that. And also, yeah, Maester Eamon, he's um, he's sort of that person who I think Sir Alistair, as much as you know, he might not like it. He's the the wisest of the bunch and the one who you should probably listen to. Yes, he's the person whose judgment yeah, I think you should always defer to. And I love his line to close that scene where um, mm. Sir Alice says, how did you acquire this skill to know when people are lying? And his very simple response is just, oh, grew up in King's Landing. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, what did you make of uh, Janna Slint being back? Oh, poor Janos Slim. He's he's um, he's a a good foil, but in a different kind of way. In that he's just the useless comic relief, you know, <laughs> Lannister nobody. Ah, now he has he has important friends in the capital. Is he? Be very careful. He has very important friends. You'll see. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Yeah. Do you like to walk at the back of the train instead of riding? This one's called Lady's Lace. Would you like to walk without shoes? You have to know a land to rule it. It's plants, it's rivers, it's roads. It's people. 
Dusk grows tea, eases fever. Everyone in Marine knows that, especially the slaves who have to make the tea. If you want them to follow you, you have to become a part of their world. Strategy. As Daenerys' army marches towards the city of Meereen, uh, they discover the body of a slave child pointing them in the direction of the great city, and it's revealed to Danny that a child's body marks every mile post on the road, and that there's still 163 miles to go. On the road, Darion Harris, who was told to ride at the back of the train for making Daenerys late that morning, attempts to get back in Daenerys' good books by teaching her about the flowers and plants local to the area, and insists that if she is to rule the land, then she must be as knowledgeable about it as she can be. Um, which I think is a totally fair point. First question, and I think it's uh, the main question that mm-hmm. um, most people had taken away from this episode. Um, what do you make of the new Dario? I quite like him. Yeah, I was I was a bit... Um, when he said there's a new Dario and Harris coming, I thought, oh God, here we go again. But he he fits the role really well, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, obviously because... Um, Unfortunately, you know, the, the previous actor, um, when he comes into the show, having, you know, watched the whole show and stuff like that, it is a bit odd to be like, oh, yeah, that guy was Dario first, not this new guy. Mm. And I actually quite like the new guy. I think they maybe should have put more of an effort in to just shave him. But, like, Dario's beard becomes a thing and you just kind of get used to it and it's fine. I don't know. I like that he's sort of more kind of rugged looking i think the other one was very much like a pretty boy it didn't really it didn't really work with this sort of warrior facade that you put on well it's nice that a new uh, a completely new face and a new actor playing basically the same character hasn't been too jarring for you it's nice that you have been able to ease in and i think you know they make a deliberate point of inventing this kind of new scene where um, Dario and Grey Worm are gambling by holding up their swords um, yeah. so you get a good solid long look at this Dario it's not like they're doing um, it's not quite the same but like um, the start of season 3 of Lost they decide to introduce two new characters in the middle of a scene as if they've always mm. been there when they haven't Yeah, as if yeah. they've always been part of the group um, if, if people want to look up uh, Nikki and Paolo from Lost and about how controversial they were as a character pairing and how unpopular they were, then go ahead and do some Googling because it's a a wonderful, wonderful look into the chaos of writing one of the biggest shows in the world, basically on the hoof, because they were the seasons were so long that they had less time to prepare episodes and they had to do things at the start of every new season to sort of keep people interested because it was on a major network and it was mm-hmm. attracting hundreds of millions of people watching it um and uh tens of millions on the night and stuff like that and so at least they've they've definitely they've made this scene to introduce the new dario essentially these two new scenes dario is basically the center of daenerys's plot line this week where he's gambling with gray worm you get a good look at him and then he's introducing Mm. daenerys to the flowers and the plants and kind of breaking the rules a little bit doing that sort of thing and it, it's it's good I, I think it is I think it is good it's, it's a good decision I think they kind of treat him half as a new character and half as just a new actor and so you get kind of like a half and half and you get like another reintroduction to this new Dario which I thought was quite cool yeah and I wonder if we're going to get a similar sort of thing with the mountain I suppose more on that later but it, it kind of struck me that we didn't see him in season three and we do know that he's going to be replaced by a new actor, a third one. Yes. So, 
Yeah, as yeah. Uh, Miley Cyrus said in our, at the end of our episode in The Climb, there's always going to be another mountain. That's um, true. So, <laughs> yes. Um, another yeah. thing to take away from this, I think, uh, Daenerys' dragons, they're getting bigger. This is the biggest they've been. Yeah, they're, they're very, very, very big, big now. Yeah. Um, yeah. What? Yeah. What kind of notes have you got for the Daenerys stuff this week, away from Dario? Hmm. It's it's great again to see Daenerys facing an actual challenge, um, albeit probably the grimmest one she's had to encounter yet. And it it probably also doesn't help that I don't know if you've noticed that her leadership unit is now like Jorah, Barristan, Dario, Grey Worm. It's it's and it's getting a little bit crowded and you can't help but wonder if managing all of these clashing personalities at the same time as managing an entire fucking army and three enormous dragons might start to overwhelm her a little bit and draw her attention away from the end game you know power is not the same thing as control and in this episode as much as she still you know she still seems to have mostly a grasp on it there are those frustrations coming out like you know you mentioned that scene with um, Dario and Grey Worm that they're just pissing about and and gambling when she's trying to run a tight knit operation so I'm wondering if this might sort of catch up to her okay yeah interesting uh, interesting question to leave it on you know why all the world hates a minister think your gold and your lions and your gold lions make you better than everyone. I tell you a secret. You're not a golden lion. You're just a pink little man who's far too slow on the draw. In a cold open, Tywin Lannister melts down Ned Stark's great sword Ice into two different swords, uh, one of which he gives to Jamie. Jamie is the new head of the King's Guard after returning to the capital and says that he's determined to remain in that position instead of heading back to Castle Rock to rule as Tywin's heir. Jamie also gets fitted with a golden hand. Uh, Tyrion is awaiting the arrival of Prince Oberyn Martell from Dawn, who has been sent to attend the royal wedding, but he finds Prince Oberyn in a brothel, and Prince Oberyn has just had a fight. Uh, Tyrion speaks with Oberyn, who says he has come to King's Landing to repay the debt owed by Tywin Lannister and the Mountain, who long ago killed his sister Elia Martell and her two children. Sansa is still distraught over the deaths of Rob and Catelyn, so Tyrion tries to comfort her and talk her round. Shay, after trying and failing to reinstigate her romance with Tyrion, becomes angry with him. Uh, one of Cersei's handmaidens overhears the argument and goes to tell Cersei about that secret relationship. And after praying in the godswood and believing that she is being followed, Sansa discovers Sir Dantos Hollard in the city gardens, and he, pre- mm-hmm. he presents her with a necklace as thanks for saving his life on Joffrey's name day and says, look, my house is basically finished. Can you let him have one last day in the sun? So, lots of stuff mm. going on in King's Landing, so we'll try and break it down. Um, so, yeah. the episode started here. Um, we'll start with, uh, I don't know if you have any notes about what happens with, uh, Jamie this week being given the great sword. He's now head of the King's guard. He has that conversation with Joffrey about the book of brothers. Uh, what have you got? I mean, it's very, it's quite a Jamie centric episode. This, even though I wouldn't say he was the most important part of it, but he does come up a lot because, well, why wouldn't he? We've not seen him in King's Landing for, for yonks for 
what is it, three seasons now? For, it, it, we've only ever seen him in King's Landing, first episode of the first season and the last episode of season three, literally just as he walked in and said, oh, I'm back to Cersei. Hmm. I mean, there's there's one particular thing I wanted to pick up on. Um, obviously, I don't want to spend all day on this because I feel like there's a lot of a lot of Jamie depth we could get into um, if had we had the time. But there's a passing comment from Jamie to Brienne in this episode about Brienne being a Lannister, which I think is supposed to be just an off the cuff jibe from Jamie. But mm-hmm. I hadn't actually noticed the resemblance until now and I wonder if there may be something in that. With what we know about the Lannister children all being quote, blonde of hair and also what we don't necessarily know about Tywin's past and his previous conquests, is there a chance that Brienne might have some Lannister blood? Um, It's a question that will either be answered or not answered, either at a later day or quite soon. So, we had a little, well, we had a little chat before about uh, Prince Oberyn, but now we can have a bigger chat. So Pedro Pascal comes waltzing into this show. Um, <laughs> I think that when, it, like I say, when he runs that finger over the candle, it is just like, oh my god, this guy is so cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hard not to fall in love with him. Yeah, I mean, probably the coolest character in the show so far. I'd haven't really got much to say about him at the minute because he's a brand new character and we don't know all of his ins and outs. But what we do know is, you know, why he's here, what he's, you know, what his intentions are and Hmm. what, you know, the scores he's here to settle. He's not just shown up and it's like, who the bloody hell is this? They've done a really good job of explaining this, this new character and their, their motivations. It's really yes. good stuff. No, it really is. Um, did you get the the story that he tells the Tyrion? Would you like that explaining again, or did did you think do you think you got the whole thing, like the whole story about what happened? About his sister being killed by the mountain. Yeah. Um. So basically, you have to go back again. This is mm. why I fucking love this show. Um, you have to go back to Robert's Rebellion. Yeah. So Robert Baratheon. Um, so basically, what happens is um, Rhaegar Targaryen is married to Elia Martell, and they mm. have children together. Yeah. But then Rhaegar Targaryen, as we know, kidnapped and raped Lyanna Stark, which started the mm. war with Robert's Rebellion, and then Robert's Rebellion ended with the Mad King being killed and King's Landing being overthrown. By uh, combined forces, Ned Stark, Rob Stark, um, uh, Tywin Lannister. And then at some point during the sack of that city, an order is given for the mountain to kill Elia Martell and the Targaryen children. And Elia Martell is the sister of Prince Oberyn. So he's here to settle a score, basically blames the mountain and Tywin Lannister for the death of his sister and uh, nieces and nephews, um, mm. and so he's here to get some. You know, he's here to settle the score. It's like saying he he's also all out of bubblegum as well, and yeah, yeah, he's 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 not. You know, he's he's going to let people know about that. And I think that he's a guy with a singular mission, and uh, he's exciting. <laughs> Very much so. I agree. 
Um, I also just wanted to mention as well, just um, about the beginning. It's a lovely touch from Ramin Javadi uh, to have the Stark and Lannister themes play over one another as the Stark sword is melted down. Oh, uh, yeah. Again, it's another thing about Ghost in the show as well, where that's Ned Stark's sword. Um, mm. He used it in the very first episode to behead Will, the deserter from the Night's Watch who saw the White Walkers. Um, You're right. That's yeah. that sword. What other notes have you got? from King's Landing this week that we've got because um, there's a lot going on so um, I don't know what, what else you managed to take down yeah there is a lot going on um, I feel like we could talk about Sansa who is still in a visible state of shock after the events of the Red Wedding with only Tyrion whose immediate family was directly involved with and benefited from the massacre and Shay, who's in a secret relationship with Tyrion Mm. offering anything in the way of support. And so seeing Dantas Hollard again for the first time since, I think it's Blackwater we last saw him? Uh, could even be the first episode of season two, actually, because it's when he nearly gets... Um, th- I'm nearly sure we've seen him in, in Blackwater in a non-speaking role. I could be wrong. Yeah, that that could be right. Um, yeah, it, yeah, just sort of in the background, because he is the king's fool. Yeah, he's... Yeah. Um, he's where um where Cersei and that lot were he's doing sort of entertainment, I think. Yes, he's juggling. That's well it. remembered. That's yeah, I yeah. have completely forgotten about that. Yes, really well remembered. Yeah, it's a it's a really nice surprise to see him again and it gave unexpected significance to a character I previously would have thought was just a one off, just part of the scenery in King's Landing, along with so many others. In a you know, in a not very heartwarming episode, it's reassuring to know that Sansa isn't alone in being an outcast at King's Landing, and nor has her compassion gone unnoticed both in that that first episode at Joffrey's name day and also in um in Blackwater when she you know, she rouses the the other women into song. Yeah. He was there for that. Yeah, ex- exactly, and it is. It it really is. It's a lovely scene where yeah. Santa. It's really. I mean, I, I kind of love how they set it up as a bit of a little mini horror uh, thriller sequence where she's being followed, and then it turns yeah, out yeah. it's just some harmless, you know, Sedantos. But um, no, I do because Tyrion's trying his best, but whenever Santa looks at Tyrion, she's just reminded of what his family has done. Yeah, and so yeah. with at least with Sedantos. It's a reminder of something that she achieved and something that she stopped from happening and something that she has, like you say, she's now been kind of rewarded for it. And it's a really big, I do, I think it's a lovely moment. I do. And like, as much as it's kind of soured by the statue of Joffrey. um, Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is brilliant. It's so funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no. I just think that um, it's a just, yeah, no, just a really lovely scene, um, and it's great that you've picked up on it as well because it's kind of like a minor scene, but it is a sweet moment, and we're really grasping for those at the moment. So um, yeah, yeah. Speaking of statues that need to be thrown in the sea, uh, well, yeah, <laughs> um, they're not far from a body of water there. <laughs> no, no. Um, I should say as well that the. The way that Prince Oberyn arrives in the books is a little different. Um, okay. In the in the timeline, he arrives slightly before. If 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 you know if we were to directly mirror the events from the books in the show, 
he would have arrived, I think it's just after the Red Wedding happens, he arrives in right. King's Landing okay. before that small council meeting or mm. something like that. But, they, you know, they've rejigged it because obviously, you know, start of a new season means it can introduce a new character. But his introduction is supposed to mirror Tyrion's introduction to the show in season one because the first time we ever see Tyrion, we expect him to be part of a royal, uh, a royal procession and he's not. He's, he's found his way to a brothel immediately. I see. And okay. so they send Tyrion down, expecting Prince Oberyn to be part of this royal procession, and he's already found mm. his way to a brothel. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, bloody hell, that's awesome. We're also introduced to his, um, as Oberyn refers to her as his paramour, um, that is um, Ilaria. And her name is Alaria Sand, and Sand mm. is the bastard name for people in the south in Dawn, uh, just as it, ah, is for, okay. as it is for yeah. snow in, in the north. Um, I also thought there was a funny little scene between Marjorie and Lady Olena, where Marjorie sort of reveals her true colours, where like she's laughing and joking about like um, having a necklace picked out by Joffrey, and that she'll have like severed heads on the necklace, and... Mm. Lady Olena's like, oh, you be careful with that. Even around me, you've got no idea who's listening. <laughs> um, it's true. It's and true. Then, and we yeah. we do see a, a spy later in the episode, in you know, in King's Landing. Yes, with um, Shay and Tyrion. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you get the great scene where Brienne walks up behind Lady Olena and she turns around and she goes, "My word!" Oh God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love Aren't it. you just marvelous? <laughs> I was just going to say, in terms of um, levity in King's Landing this week, there was also the line from Cersei about um, I'm supposed to marry her brother, a renowned pillow biter. Like, just <laughs> beautiful stuff. Yeah, gorgeous imagery. Um, <laughs> I did want to ask you about um, the stuff between Tyrion and Shay. Mm. I don't know if you took any notes down for that. How, how do you feel about where their little thing is going? Um, I've not got much about it, just that it's a continuation of this kind of love triangle that um, Sansa's also involved in, where they, both Tyrion and Shay kind of resent Sansa, but they know they shouldn't because it's a situation they've been forced into, but it's a situation that nobody in that triangle wants to be in. It's a really, like, complex and strange situation. Um but yeah, I think Shay's patience is kind of running out, which is understandable. And she's, um, we saw in the end of season three that she's agreed to stay in King's Landing. Well, not agreed, but decided to. Yeah. And yeah, because she's decided to do that because she loves Tyrion. But Tyrion's stuck in this marriage that he doesn't want to be in. And Sansa is also stuck in this marriage that she doesn't want to be in. So... Yeah, it, it all feels like they're they're trapped in this this web that's been spun by Tywin. Yeah, I also get that sense. You know, like you were saying that you wouldn't from that small council meeting in the last episode where you were saying you wouldn't believe this was the winning side. We've got I know, Jamie I know. refusing to be Tywin's heir. Yeah, we've got Cersei and Jamie kind of falling apart because he's been away too long. We've got Tyrion angry with Tywin because of the situation he's been forced into with Sansa and Shay. And it's like Tywin's meddling and sort of making his children 
storm away from him every single time they seem to speak to him. It's like they always end the conversation angry with him. All these internal issues are undermining the great victory that they landed about two weeks ago. Mm. And wasn't there a line towards the end of the last season about every time you defeat an enemy, you make five more? Yes, and yeah. And wouldn't you know it, one's just showed up. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, guess who's coming to dinner? You don't seem to understand the situation. I understand that if any more words come pouring out your cunt mouth... I'm going to have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. You lived your life for the king. You're going to die for some chickens. Someone is. We're going to finish this week in the Riverlands, where the Hound reveals to Arya that his plan is now to sell her to her Aunt Lysa in the Vale. Uh, they arrive at an inn where they encounter Poliver, who stole Arya's sword Needle on the night that Yorin died, and a few of his men. Uh, after a conversation between the Hound and Poliver grows tense, a fight breaks out. Poliver's men are killed by the Hound and by Arya, who joins in the fighting. Uh, she spots a chance to attack Poliver and reclaims her sword before killing him with it and the pair ride off into the Riverlands, which have been torn to shreds by the War of the Five Kings. Mm. So um, our last stop on this bubblegum tour, uh, <laughs> the Hound, all out of bubblegum, is after chickens this week. Um, yeah. Yeah, great stuff in the Riverlands. What, what, have you, what have you got for it? Yeah, absolutely love these scenes. Going back to that... Sorry again. Going back to that Milton quote from earlier, it's worth remembering that last time we saw Arya... She launched an attack on some of the, I think it was the Frey soldiers. Yeah. She was still evidently in like a state of shock. So her attacks were uncoordinated and uninhibited. In the final scene with the fight, however, she seems to be frozen in that moment until being like spurred into action by something. I don't know if it was just spotting an opportunity, but it almost seems like she's just suddenly recalled all of her training with... Syria Varel in season one that she hasn't really been able to put to good use until now and mm. it culminates in that 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 sweet sweet revenge on that piece of shit Oliver yeah when he was listed as your uh, loser of the week in season two I was like oh you're gonna love this episode when we get to it <laughs> oh, and you were not wrong <laughs> um, there's some really good lines in this like um, what the fuck's a lommy is um, quite a funny one, I think. <laughs> he killed my friend Lommy. What the fuck's Lommy? You got lots of people name their swords. Lots of cunts. Um, that's a and the little smile on Arya's face um, when he says that. And then you've got um, the uh, think I'll take two chickens and um, gonna have to eat every fucking chicken in this room and all, all these great lines which are just like. Again, you know, it's one of those moments that Game of Thrones likes to provide every now and again where it sort of forgives you for uh, not thinking too much about the wider emotional implications of the scene, like Arya kind of being taken down a deep spiral of still revenge-killing people and finding this as a way to... She's still cornered, but she's kind of striking back, but it... It feels good in the moment, but then you think, like, but is this healthy? But then you're sort of like, fuck whether it's healthy or not. Like, it's just badass and it's fun. 
and she gets a cool yeah, kill yeah. and she gets to repeat Polyver's lines back to him that she's been holding on to all this time and she gets to stab him in the neck. Yeah, it's one name off the list. It is one name off the list, yeah. Um, she's got the means to do it. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's a great scene that's become a real, it, it, it's such it's such a popular scene in the fandom, this. It always has been. Um, mm. To the point where, like, members of Game of Thrones subreddits have referred to themselves as chickens because <laughs> they, they love being the chickens in the room that the hound wants to eat. And yeah. there's some really grisly images in this scene that they worked hard to produce. Like, the one that oh, I yeah. can never, ever... There's three that really get me. There's the one um, of the guy being struck by a sword in a fairly private place, and his mm-hmm. reaction is just sort of like, oh, like that. And it's not really a yelp out in pain. It's more of like a groan of anguish. And then you get the scene where the hound manages to move and maneuver this guy's head over his own knife and then mashes his face into yeah. the knife. And, oh, Jesus, when it, when they pull his head back up away from that knife and there's, like, that hole in the middle of his eye and it's like, oh. And then yeah, there's the yeah. final one where Aya sticks the tiny sword through Polyver's throat. Um mm. Yeah, there's some really grisly image in the, images in this that are just so effective, so so effective and so horrible. And it, but it is just a great scene. It's just great watching like a great double act kind of you know whoop some ass, you know. <laughs> well, they're a double act, but they're also one of those weird odd couples that we've had a couple of in this show. You yeah. know, like um, like Jamie and Brienne and uh, John and Egret Tyrion before. and Bronn and John and Sam. You know, I was going to say John and Egret before as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Them too. Yeah, the show's really good at character pairings and putting people off on the road, I think. Yeah, Sending I them agree. away somewhere. Um, I think that I do sort of enjoy the violence of this scene. I think that this is, of all the season premieres we've had so far, I think this is my favourite scene from any of the premieres that we've had so far. It's just, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it's just good to kind of open the season with a bit of a bang. But I think that this is why the beginning of season four really benefits from not being the start of a new book. It's the middle of the third book. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. we're kind of starting in the middle of the story, which is like a really exciting place to pick things up. And to be fair, this this show, this scene is kind of like a show invention. Um, it's a bit of a... Because I think the arrangement with Polyver is slightly different in the books where he either turns up later or turns up earlier and he's killed in a different way. But like all the stuff with um, Arya getting her sword back and copying his line from like, you know, going like full proper like cheesy Hollywood with it where it's like, even though it was over like 18 months ago, I still remember every single word you said to the letter, like verbatim, like I know it all exactly because this Mm -hmm. is TV. And people have these kinds of memories, so fuck it. We'll just we'll just do it, and we'll go, and we'll be cool, and we'll give the fans a big moment where they can go, ah, yeah, because because we haven't had any of those really at all in the show, where like you can just sort of sit back and go, yeah, this yeah, is great. Jo- yeah, if George Lucas would be proud. It's like poetry; it rhymes. <laughs> yeah, George Lucas would be proud, but it, it's true. That is something that I'm just thinking of now. Have we had a moment so far in the whole show where? You can sort of sit back, other than maybe Daenerys taking the army from Astapor, has there been a moment where you think, yeah, there's been nothing undercutting it, like there's been nothing thinking like, oh, should I be cheering this? Like there's been no moment so far where you're like, 
fuck yeah, this is cool and well, great. The, the only one, the only other one I actually mentioned in my notes was the ending of um, and now his watch has ended, like you just mentioned. Yes, yeah. Daenerys defeating Krasnus. Maybe Viserys getting killed. Maybe, but that felt kind of inevitable. Yeah, that's true. This is kind of like you do have an element of surprise with this one, at least, mm. and you can sort yeah. of bask in it and uh, love the glory, I guess. <laughs> yes, I agree. Um, right, so for season four, mm. we have a new feature at the end of every episode where Lizzie will put forward her favourite line of the episode. Mm. So, Lizzie, what is your favourite line of the episode this week? Um, we've mentioned it before in this episode, but I'm just going to actually say it as it was delivered. Um, the line of the episode comes from the Hound, who says, I understand that if any more words come pouring out of your cunt mouth, I'm going to have to eat every fucking chicken in this room. Yes, that is Beautiful. the uh, yeah, that, that is the best line of the episode, I think. <laughs> yeah, wonderful stuff. And I think... 99% of people listening to this would agree as well. It's mm-hmm. a line, like I say, it became very popular. It was a huge meme uh, for a very long time. And it's something that the fan base still love. And there's something that the fan base still celebrate. So, yeah, worthy, worthy winner. So, Indeed. we'll go on to our usuals now. Uh, who is your loser this week? Uh, my loser of the week is Polliver. We've, um, we've talked a lot about believable bastards in the past. And... Oliver's definitely one of those, and he's not one. He's not a character that I expected to see return to the show, but he's also very much a character that I'm glad to see the back of. And also, the word um, the word bastard comes up a lot in this podcast. I wonder if maybe we need to coin a new phrase, like say "plausible pricks" or "feasible fuckheads" or even <laughs> "credible cunts." Maybe <laughs> we'll you work choose. on it. Well, <laughs> do you know, I'm thinking Polliver is in like four episodes of the whole show and you've named him as your loser of the week twice. Yeah. So that's a hell, that's that, that's a 50% hit rate for being your loser of the week, <laughs> which I think is like the highest of any character so far, apart from maybe Ramsey Snow. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah so he's, he's way up there. <laughs> well, he won't be again, will he? Uh, no, that that is the last we see of him. <laughs> Yeah, he's not Beric Dondarrion, don't worry about that. Um. <laughs> yeah, thank God for that. Um, who's your winner then, this week? Uh, my winner of the week is Arya. Um, okay, cool. Honourable mention to the Hound as a very, very close second for that glorious arse-kicking he delivered. But yeah, it's got it's got to be Arya for that slaying of Polliver alone. And she got a pony in the end. She did get her pony, yes. I'm yeah. really glad you noticed that. She gets that lovely little smile... As they uh, and they head out into the uh, they head out into the wilderness together. Um, that's actually a really good moment, I think, because the show has not forgotten how war torn the countryside is, thanks to the uh, War of the Five Kings that basically destroyed it. Um, yeah. And a lot of the reason that we haven't seen the mountain throughout all of season three is that his army has been running across the riverlands, causing havoc, basically ripping villages to shreds, um, that sort of thing. So. Um, and I just, yeah, I love that the closing shot is Arya kind of on this horse. Um, big moment for her, but it's kind of like the end of, I would say like the end of the first Lord of the Rings movie where Sam and Frodo just kind of, they begin wandering out into the middle of nowhere. 
Yeah. No quite, yeah. no real destination in mind or how they're going to... Well, they have the destination map, which obviously is Mount Doom, but there's no clear plan of how they're going to get there. And it's kind of similar for these two, where they've just kind of head out on the road and hope for the best. Um, yeah. But yeah, a really good Aya episode. Um, and that is Aya's first nomination for winner of the week since season two, episode eight, which is a long time ago. I know. I can't believe I didn't nominate her in season three at all, but... To be fair, she had kind of a not you know not a bad arc by any means, but a, a quieter one. She was just sort of in between places, like she was with the you know the um, the Brotherhood and then the, the Brotherhood, Hound yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, and also you know she was saying goodbye to Hot Pie and um, Gendry, and yeah, Gendry, yeah, yeah. All right, then. Um, So that brings us to the end of the episode for the week. Um, We do have an announcement about our interview guest for the middle of the season. Uh, It's a guy called Eric Anthony Nolan, or just Eric Nolan. Um, Eric played, was lucky enough to play a wildling extra on the show. Uh, Won't tell you which seasons, Lizzie, because it may give it away. Um, But we spoke to him about a week ago. The interview will be out after our episode for season four, episode five. And we get some really good tales for him about what it was like to work on Game of Thrones and his experiences. He's also uh, on a show called Vikings, which is apparently on the History Channel or funded by the <laughs> History Channel, um, which is uh, apparently trying to, you know, reach the size of uh, Game of Thrones. But it's still running, apparently, which I, which I didn't know. But we, we spoke to him about what mm-hmm. it's like to be an extra in Northern Ireland working on Game of Thrones and all the trials and tribulations that extras have to go through. Uh, that interview is going to be out in a few weeks so yeah we look forward to that um we hope you'll really enjoy it uh he did recently do an interview with nerd soup on youtube as well um so you can go and find that i'll leave a link to that in the show notes as well so that's it season four begins next week we've got season four episode two which is called the lion and the rose we'll be back to talk about that and uh yeah see if it's as good as this week see ya